Now, the prophecy in Isaiah that we have just read happens very early in the ministry of Isaiah. You may be familiar with that great passage in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah has his vision of being in the throne room of God, seeing God, or rather seeing the wings of the seraphim standing there, these angelic beings that cover the face and cover the feet of the Lord. And Isaiah is here commissioned to go out and to preach, to prophesy to the people. However, this people are largely going to ignore him. They're not going to listen to his prophecy. So cities are going to be laid waste. You know, people will be exiled, and it will seem as if everything is lost. There's only going to be a bare little stump left. But this stump, Scripture says, is the holy seed. It is a small remnant, the true people of God, those who believe in him who are still there, those who fear and who trust in him. And if you've read through Isaiah recently, you may have noticed that it's a book that is really full of, well, judgment and destruction. Judgment that is following the sinful acts of this people, their rebellion against him. But also surrounding these passages of judgment and destruction, we see restoration. We see these glimpses of the mercy of God shining through. See, there's light in darkness. And there's hope here in distress. Now, before we get into the sermon, just pray with me. Father God, your servants are listening. And what we need this morning is not to hear the words of men, but indeed your words. So speak to us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, what is the situation facing the people here in Isaiah 8 and 9? It is a prophecy of an Assyrian invasion. Now, I want you to put yourself in the situation of the people of God at this time. The kingdom has, since Solomon, which is a long time ago, been divided into two. So you have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the great kingdoms of this time are you know, those two, as well as Assyria and Syria. You know, notice the A. Assyria and Syria. Now, Assyria is the greatest one of these. It has already taken over large parts of Israel. As we see uh, in Scripture, it mentions Naphtali and Zebulun. That's some of the parts they have conquered. So Israel and Syria have come together recognizing we need to deal with these people. We We need to deal with the Assyrians. And they tell Judah, join us. Come and join our alliance so we can defeat them. But Judah says no. So they don't take that very kindly. So now they decide, you know, we're going to attack you instead. So the king of Judah then turns to Assyria and says, why don't you help us? And suddenly we have this strange alliance. Now as the king of Judah asks the Assyrians to help, he even goes into the temple, the holy temple, taking gold and silver and giving it to the foreign king, essentially telling him, be our deliverer, save us from our enemies. 
But God here in Isaiah tells the king that Syria and Israel, they will be dealt with. They will be taken care of. They will be judged. And God, he's going to use the king of Assyria to destroy those nations. But not only will those two be overcome, but Assyria is going to come for you as well. They're going to come for Judah. To the kingdom that Judah had made their savior, their deliverer is the one who's going to come and be their persecutor, who's going to be their oppressor, their enemy. You see, the people of Judah, they're in a terrible condition, you know, spiritually speaking. You know, they are not uh, listening to God. They're not obeying him. The king that we see here, Ahaz, he even offered up his child as a sacrifice to the pagan gods which is the same thing that the Canaanite nations in the region had done previously. So we have a people here living in deep darkness, spiritual darkness. They don't know God. They don't know the Lord, the one who made them, the one who saved and delivered them out of Egypt. And judgment is coming. So what can we in London, 2023, glean from this passage? And I think this passage centers on two themes that are so important to strike at the very heart of who we are, fear and hope. Because what is the thing that you fear this morning? And what is the thing that you put your hope in? Because I want you to see here this morning the hope of God. And we're going to consider this hope threefold. As we see first the hope of the light of God, the hope of the light of God, the hope of the promise of God, And then thirdly, the hope of the gospel of God. So the light, the promise, and the gospel of God. So first then, if you look at uh, at chapter 8, verse 22, you will see here the hope of the light of God. And you see here the great contrast between darkness and light. As it says, Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. So what we see here is the description of the people living in Judah, those who rebel against God. They don't acknowledge him as the one who made them, who out of his great mercy and grace had delivered them. Instead, we see them exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshiping the creature rather than the creator. See, their greatest desire are instead the very things they have made up themselves. And as they look around themselves, what is it that they see? What is it that they will you know, behold as they look around? Will they see trouble? They see, we see darkness, gloom of anguish, terrible afflictions, you know, these horrible circumstances. And all that they can do in response to that is curse the king and curse God himself. We see they're so set in their ways, they cannot see the hand of God at work in this time. The darkness that surrounds them is indicative of the darkness of their hearts, of their soul. They're spiritually blind, so even though they hear, they do not understand. Even though they see, they do not actually perceive what it is they're seeing. See, their fear is the fear of man. It's their fear of the Assyrians and their hope. Well, they have no hope. Whatever had been their hope was a material prosperity, Maybe their social status, their reputation, it's all empty. It's all gone. And because of their disobedience, what awaits them is darkness. 
Now, this is a particular kind of darkness. It's the same word that we find in Exodus 10. You know, the ninth plague, when darkness covered the land of Egypt. And it was a darkness, it says, a darkness to be felt. It's a word of judgment that we see later in Deuteronomy 28. In that chapter that lists all the great blessings, all the benefits the people of God would enjoy if only they trusted in him and they listened to him. But also had a list of the horrible consequences and punishment that would come if they rebelled from him, if they forsook him. And that is what we see happening here. Because as they turn from God, they'll be defeated by their enemies. And they will be like the blind groping around in the darkness. And this is what you may call the bad news. The, the, you know, the, the news that judgment is reserved for the vast majority of the people of Israel here who have rejected the Lord their God. And if you were here this morning and you are wondering thus far what this has to do with you. Because you may think, I am not these Israelites. But the bad news is that even though we are fearfully and wonderfully made by God, as men and women made in his image, we have chosen to love that which is not God. We have chosen instead to worship the creature rather than the creator. We have taken the good things that are gifts of God and made them the ultimate thing. A place which is only reserved for God himself. And in our actions, in our words, in our thoughts, we have rejected him. See, like Adam and Eve, we have desired to be more than just like God. We wanted to be God himself. See, Paul in Romans says that we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So we're all sinners, and not only sinners, but we are indeed enemies of God, and what we deserve is judgment. You see, the story could have ended in Genesis 3. The story could have ended in with after the fall right there. The book of Isaiah could have been full of nothing but judgment, and God would be right, and God would be good. But this takes us to see the second part of the hope of the light of God, which is the light itself. If you look at chapter 9, verse 1, you, know, you will see this. And just a quick note that when you, when you read this and you, you see this past tense of you know, speaking in the past, that even though, it's a few, kind of, you know, even though it's speaking about a future event, the, pro, the new prophets oftentimes speak of it as if it's already happened because they're so sure that it will come to happen in the future. So we see when in this darkness, there's going to be a great light. See, when in, the, in this deep darkness, a light is going to shine. Just as God in Genesis 1-1 said, let there be light. He equally, miraculously, and powerfully makes his light shine on his people. But what is this light? Well, this light is the same that John the apostle speaks of in the first chapter of his gospel. When he says, the word himself in whom was life is the light of all humanity. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There's no darkness that is so deep or so thick that the, the, that light cannot penetrate it. So even though they walk in this deep darkness, which is 
actually what, what we find in Psalm 23, of walking in the valley of the shadow of death. In that psalm, it is the presence of the shepherd being there with us that sustains us. And here in Isaiah 9, it is the presence of Jesus that will bring us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So do you see in this passage who is the one acting? Who is the one doing the things? Who is the one bringing about the change? It is not Israel. It is not us. It is God himself who brings the light and who enlightens us. But what does that mean? Well, it means that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved you has made you new. He has shown his light on us and we can see this light. We are able to behold this beautiful ray of the sun himself shining on us. See, this reality here is what distinguishes walking by faith to walking by sight. For most of the Israelites here, they're walking by sight. They see the, the Assyrians and they feared them. You know, they saw the misery and they cursed God. They looked to the earth and they only saw darkness. But what did the remnant do? What did the true people of God do? They saw the misery and they prayed to God. They looked to the word of God and they saw the promises of God. And that brings us to the second point, the hope of the promises of God. And if you would look at verse 3 with me here. To the great fear that we see throughout the Old Testament is that the people of God will be destroyed. In particular, what they fear is the end of the line of David, which is why at the end of 2 Kings, we read about the final king of Judah, the last one, being released from prison, and it says that every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table. What it is telling us is that the kingly line continues. There will be a son of David to come. Now, with the Assyrians coming, the end of God's people is one of the great fears here, because what will happen to the people of God? Will they be slaughtered? Will they be taken into captivity and slowly wiped off the earth? But here we see this wonderful promise that God will multiply the nation. So even though the Assyrians are coming with this terrible strength and force and might and cruelty, God is going to multiply his people. You see, God is faithful to his promises. He had promised Abraham that he would make him a great nation that there would be nations coming from him, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. And God is true to his promises. See, God never changes. His promises are sure. So the nation will persevere. They'll persevere through the onslaught of the Assyrians. They'll persevere through the Babylonians taking them into captivity. And they'll persevere you know, through the conquests by the Persians, by the Greeks and the Romans. And this great nation of God, or rather this great people of God, are going to multiply far beyond 
where they currently are, far beyond the borders of Israel, not just to be contained in Jerusalem, Judea, or Samaria, but indeed to the ends of the earth, a people that is not even contained by the Old Testament chosen people, the Jewish people, but expanded to all. So that on the last day, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will be singing praises to God. Because that's what we see John writing in the, in, in, in the book of Revelation. As he heard the voice of a great multitude crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Because you see, on that day, when Jesus comes again, to fulfill all of his promises, there will be a great rejoicing. And there'll be this great rejoicing because it's really the culmination of what he has promised so far. It's the culmination of the good news, what we call the gospel, which takes us to the third point, the hope of the gospel of God. And this gospel, this good news, we see here threefold in this passage. So we see, first of all, the end of oppression here. So look at verse 4 here with me. Because we see here the suffering of God's people being described. The yoke is heavy. The weight is bringing them down. The oppressor has his rod and his staff, the instruments to beat them down and keep them low. And where is his imagery taken from but from Exodus? When the people were enslaved when they were worked to death, literally, and beaten harshly. See, Isaiah here is bringing to mind the very state and condition from which they had been saved, from which they had been delivered, because you'll remember that not soon after the Exodus, as they've been delivered from the Egyptians and they're walking in that wilderness, they start longing to return to Egypt. They're so miserable walking around in the wilderness, which was due to their own sin, that they had this false sense of nostalgia. I wonder if that happens to us sometimes. But the people say there, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. And we remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. See, we quickly forget, don't we, the, the state from which God has saved us. We forget the bondage that we used to live under. We forget the times we lived by the lust of the flesh. Just going for these desires, these terrible desires, but when we had this heavy yoke over us and this oppressive rod. So God is recounting this state that we see here. And he promises that everyone shall be shattered. That everyone shall be shattered on this day of Midian. And the day of Midian is that time in Judges when God called Gideon and with only 300 men defeated this huge Midianite army who had oppressed the people for seven years. It was wonderful work, impossible for men, but possible only with God. And next, what we see here is the end of the war. 
Look at verse 5 here with me. You see, in the middle of this prophecy that terrible war is coming, God gives the good news of peace. Peace is coming, but how will it come about? It will not be a peace that comes from being the greatest nation on the earth. You know, so powerful that no one dares attack it. It will not be a peace from really good diplomatic skills. It will not be a peace like the Roman peace, you know, the Pax Romana, which was mostly peaceful, but still had a lot of oppression of people in that time. Rather, it's going to be a peace that comes about by the Lord himself. He will bring it about. He will accomplish peace. That's what we see in Psalm 46, where he says, Behold the works of God, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes the war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, he shatters the spear, and he burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. So the good news here is showing the very end of oppression itself, the end of war. And finally, we see the beginning of a new age. Look at verses 6 and 7 here with me. Now these verses may be familiar to you, uh, especially come Christmas time. Because what we see here is indeed the promise of a child, the promise of one who will be a leader, who will be a king, who will rule with justice and righteousness for all eternity. And that is the heart of the gospel here in Isaiah 9, because it is indeed a new age as the son to be given this is not only a son of David, but the son of God himself. The people already had had a son of David. They had Solomon, who had brought great prosperity to the nation, but also because of David's sin and his own sins had set this nation on a trajectory of destruction, of division, of oppression and war. But the son we see here prophesied is different. There'll be no end to his government. The kingdom will be established and upheld forever. And what are the things that will characterize this kingdom? It'll be justice and righteousness. The very things that we long for, isn't it? It's the very opposite of, just, of, of the you know, injustice and, in, and, um, that led to this downfall here, to the downfall of Israel and Judah. Because you see, unrighteousness was all over the place. All over the place, which is why we see Micah say, what does the Lord require of you? What does he require but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God? That is what God desires, and that is the kingdom that Christ has brought, one in which righteous and justice, like Amos says, will roll down like an ever-flowing stream, one in which peace True peace reigns. And this is the hope here in Isaiah 9, that by the Son of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, righteousness and justice and peace will be around forever. And as we conclude this sermon, what are we to take away from this? Because I think we must acknowledge first the state that we are in apart from Christ, apart from his light, but we must also see the goodness and the mercy of God because there's no amount of deep or thick darkness into which his light 
cannot shine. You know, it does not matter what the condition is. You know, his light can shine into the heart of a prostitute like Rahab, into the heart of a thief like Zacchaeus, or into the heart of a murderer like Paul. Now, my main caution is this, that when you see the light, do not ignore it. Do not say that I can just wait till later. Because the text here speaks of the light going out to Galilee of the Gentiles. And we see this passage here, Isaiah 9, cited by Jesus when he began his ministry in Matthew chapter 4. You see, he began his ministry in Galilee as a demonstration of the light itself having come upon the earth, first shining there in Galilee, in the city of Capernaum. They were the very first ones to whom the true light was shined, to hear the gospel. But yet later in Matthew 11, Jesus says, But you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it'll be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So even though Capernaum were the first ones to hear the preaching of Jesus, they rejected it. They ignored it. They refused to repent and they still held on to their own loves and desires. So may you not ignore the light when you see it. Do not say, maybe tomorrow I will confess my sins and come to Christ. We must heed the warning that we're given in the book of Hebrews that says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Come to Christ because there's no one like him who pardons iniquity, who passes over transgression, who delights in the steadfast love and who is full of compassion, who indeed has cast all of your sins into the depths of the sea. So why would you continue to endure the yoke of the oppressor when Christ says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why would you fear the rod and the staff of your oppressor when God is our shepherd? And even though we walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For my shepherd is there. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. So why would you continue to be an enemy of God when you can be a child of God? For to us, a child is given so that through him, we may become children of God as well. For even though the light came and was rejected by many, it says that to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he has given the right to be children of God. And how is it that God does this? Why is it that he shines the light into the darkness, keeps his promise, breaks the oppressor, stops the poor, and gives us his son who will reign forever and ever? 
Well, the last line in verse 7 answers that. Because it is by his zeal. It is by his great desire. It is by the love for his people that he will accomplish this. He is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, of might and power, who can accomplish all of this. There's nothing that can stop this from happening. It will surely happen. So we do not put our hope in the greatest earthly hope there is. Like Judah put their hope in Assyria, the greatest military power of the time. Likewise, we don't put our hope into the greatest earthly whatever of our time. The greatest politician, your abilities, your career, your wealth, but only in the Lord. Because we are then able to hold on to our hope in God. Because as the scripture says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Father God, we we are so quick to listen to the lies of Satan so that when we sin and he says, it is too late. There is nothing more. The well is dry. There is no more grace for you. May we not believe him. For in Christ, there is an ever-flowing fountain of grace and mercy. So, Lord, shine your light. May we see it and may we come. And may we do it today. Amen.